Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Is the summer heatwave set to end? The head of forecasting with Matt Aaron, Evelyn Cusack, joins us with the latest. Sharp increase in the number of COVID-19 cases related to overseas travel. Fianna Fáil TD, Cahill Crow, Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly and political correspondent at the Irish Mirror, Kira Phelan, will be with us. Davies stockbrokers sold for over 600 million euro. Economics correspondent Paul Colgan will have the latest. International wedding planner Franco, my couples are again left in limbo over their weddings. And later journalist Kieran Pender will join us live from Tokyo ahead of the Olympics opening ceremony. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Now, first this evening, the head of forecasting with Met Aaron, Evelyn Cusack, joins us now for the latest on the heatwave. And the first thing I want to ask you about is the tropical night that apparently we had last night. What exactly does that mean? And are we likely to have another one this evening? Well, we are having it, Matt. I mean, the temperature is still 26 degrees Celsius in the West and a balmy 22 degrees here in Dublin. So the definition of a tropical night is that right throughout the night, the temperature doesn't fall below 20. So certainly we're going to get another one tonight. Last night, uh, the temperature stayed above 21 degrees Celsius in County Mayo and in parts of Kerry. So a very warm, humid night in store tonight. And of course, a lot of people find this uncomfortable. I certainly do anyway. So another night of it and indeed tomorrow night as well. Half the country will be dressing like they're on Love Island when they go to bed tonight. How unusual is a tropical night though? Well, the last time we had one was 20 years ago. Uh, very unusual. And the, the, the clue is in the name because it usually occurs in the tropics. But we do have tropical air up over Ireland at the moment. Uh, the Azores high, normally in the Azores, has come up over Ireland and it's steering up tropical air up through Africa, Spain and up across Ireland. So literally it feels humid because it is a very warm, muggy air mass. How long is this high temperatures, how long are they going to last for? And even if they fall back a bit, are we still going to have an unusually good summer? Well, I don't know about the summer, um, but certainly we're, the good news for many is that it's going to be staying warm this weekend. Not as hot temperatures say, got in excess of 31 degrees Celsius today and another very hot day in store for Friday. And for the weekend, not maybe quite the 30 degrees, but still very warm and humid. Now, next week, Matt, it does look like we are in for a bit of a change as temperatures gradually tumble back into more normal values, more average values of 20 or 21 degrees Celsius. Um, it looks like it is going to turn a bit showery as well next week. Beyond that, it, things just look a bit more average, if you like. When you mentioned the showers and the rain, we have seen some spectacular rainfalls in other parts of the world in recent weeks, continental Europe and China in particular. 
Are we vulnerable to that, possibly as a result of climate change, that when we come from the extreme of very hot weather, that that then can lead to torrential outbursts of rain? Well, what climate change is doing, an increase in the... Um, the uh, temperature in the atmosphere, it's increasing the amount of moisture that the atmosphere can hold. So, for example, a one degree temperature increase uh, globally means a 7% 7, uh, 7 increase in moisture. So we are living in a one and a half uh, degree world. So certainly there's lots heavier rainfall events. Whether we'll get one for Ireland, um, certainly nothing in the next 10 days anyway, with the caveat that local heavy thundery showers will occur, not widespread across Ireland. We had some breaking out over Donegal yesterday. We had a few today. So gradually over the next few days, some local heavy downbursts uh, are likely with lightning. Now, the risk from lightning is it could spark off some fires because um, the Department of Agriculture have a fire warning out. The ground is very, very dry. So certainly locally heavy downpours are certainly likely. And one final one, is this very, very unusual what we're going through? Because there are some people who can remember like the glorious summer of 1995 or if you go back into the 1970s, before we were all talking about climate change, we did have very hot summers like this. Well, I certainly remember 1975, Matt. That's when I did my leave insert. And 1975 and 1976 were really hot, long summers. The most recent one was 2018. That was characterised more by very dry weather rather than the very high temperatures. But the difference now globally between 2018 heatwave and the 1975-76 one is that globally uh, it's there's much more extremes in the 2018 one. So so that's definitely, it has been attributed to climate change unequivocally. Evelyn Cusack, great talking to you. Thank you very much. Enjoy sitting Thanks, out in your Matt. lovely garden. Thanks so much. It's really warm here. It's lovely. <laughs> so final meetings to agree the legal rules for the resumption of indoor hospitality are to take place tomorrow morning. Here in studio, we're joined by Fianna Fáil TD Cahill Crow, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, and via Skype by the political correspondent with the Irish Mirror, Kira Phelan. But Cahill, if I can start with you, given that the 26th of July, three weeks after the initial date for the reopening of indoor hospitality, why so late in actually having the rules and regulations that businesses know they can work by? Uh, it's certainly frustrating for people who intend to open their doors Monday morning and welcome back in customers. Uh, this would appear to some as 11th hour stuff, but there has been two or three weeks of negotiations with restaurateurs, publicans. There's been a wide buy-in from those sectors. What we're now looking at is some very final detail. We have the Attorney General, Falcha Ireland and government officials looking at probably the last detail. That mainly relates to what kind of documentation you'd have to present to prove that you've had COVID, you've uh, immune, immunity to it for a six-month period, as has been health advice for a long, a, a long time now, uh, what, ty what type of documentation will prove to show that. Um, so that, that's kind of the final detail we have. Pubs and restaurants will reopen on Monday. They've been closed for far too long. Uh, we're going to see 180,000 people potentially benefit from being back to work uh, and actually walking through those doors once more. But Louise, we're hearing a lot of businesses are actually not going to open for indoor hospitality because of this delay and because of continued fears about the health and safety of young workers. 
Yeah, and um, I you, you see quite a lot of that at the moment. Um, they're concerned and they're saying, well, they don't want to open until all their staff can actually dine indoors. We have confusion from uh, members of Angarda Siakana. They don't know what role, if any, they're going to have in enforcement. That hasn't been explained to them. And as recently as one o'clock uh, this afternoon, the Tánaiste was saying every effort is being made to ensure that new regulations for indoor hospitality are published no later than this weekend. This is for people who are going to be opening their doors on Monday. So it's lastminute.com. That's not unusual. That's to be expected from this government. But I do feel uh, for those businesses who are struggling and we still don't know how the rules are going to work. So, for example, if you have like a cafe and a spa shop, uh, it's a couple of tables and, and, you know, you have your coffee machine. If you can go into the, the spa shop without being uh, with, without having to show proof of vaccination, you know, a lot of these aren't, they're, they're not walled off areas. So it's going to be very tough to be able to police that. And this is all going to fall on the workers, many of whom are, and I don't use the government term of the unvaccinated, I think that's quite insulting, but many of those are people who are waiting to uh, be vaccinated and that's very, very unfair. Should opening at all? Because given the rise in numbers that we're actually seeing here in the Republic, and given what we're also seeing taking place north of the border, where there now seems to be a reluctance to further loosen the restrictions. Well, I think it has to be kept under review constantly, I think, uh, and the government need to be prepared to take whatever actions are going to be necessary. There's absolutely no disputing that the vast majority of people in the tourism and hospitality sector want to be reopened. They want to get back to work, but they want to know that it's safe. And they also want to know that the government are watching the data and not going to get hung up on dates. The last thing we need is to have uh, hospitality and tourism yo-yoing in and out of lockdown. So the government have said that this is going to be permanent when it happens. I just hope that they have put sufficient safeguards in place. Kira Phelan, I understand you have seen a prototype of the government scanner which is going to be given to pubs and restaurants to check the eligibility of people going in. Tell us about it. Yeah, that's correct, Matt. So we've seen a mock version of this digital scanner that's set to go live tomorrow ahead of pubs and restaurants reopening on Monday. So essentially it's a QR code that um, customers and business owners will go on to the government website. And what will happen is on the point of entrance at a pub or restaurant, the business owner or the staff will be asking uh, customers, can they show the, this vaccine pass? And it will essentially say their full name and whether their vaccine pass is valid or invalid. And it's going to have very little detail. And I think that's one of the points that Cahill was making there um, regarding why there's such a last minute on these guidelines and regulations is because publicans and restauranters have been asking, you know, for legal protection, what legally, what documentation can they ask customers to provide? So the scanner, the digital scanner is set to go live tomorrow ahead of the reopening on Monday and customers are urged to make urged to check the, their vaccine pass before they go uh, to a pub or restaurant um, from Monday onwards. Now, Kira, what can you tell Kira. us about the rows that are apparently have taken place at Cabinet this week about these regulations and particularly the concerns of the Attorney General? Yeah, there was some reporting in the newspapers and mixed reporting as well, and some ministers privately saying that some of the reports were exaggerated. Other ministers playing that down and say, you know, that there was concern. And I suppose what has been reported that came out of Cabinet was that the Attorney General was essentially saying that they're leaving the 
the it's the eleventh hour essentially, and that businesses are to reopening on Monday, and they have yet to work out all of the regulations and the guidelines. However, I think you know ministers are trying to say and that we essentially know all the guidelines at the moment. It's just a matter of figuring out how they're going to be enforced. So it's very clear for publicans and restauranters to know that if if it is the case that someone tries to flout the rules what can they do in that instance? So I think, you know, tensions are probably high at the moment, um, considering that it is, it's Friday tomorrow when restaurants and pubs are still trying to figure out um, exactly what the final details are come Monday. Carl, it is unusual to read reports of an Attorney General taking issues so strongly with a particular minister, in this case, the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly. Look, th these pubs have been closed for many, many months. Some of them in Dublin have been closed virtually since March of last year. They need to get reopened. And you rightly said a lot of these people want to be vaccinated. They also do want to get back to work. I think that's very important. The sector's crying out for this. A lot of the pubs in my locality aren't configured for beer gardens. They're traditional buildings. This offers them a lifeline to reopen. Just a few things to, to respond to there on comments Louise would have made. Uh, on Garda Shukran did look for clarification. This does come under class four fines. So there is a capacity for that. And it's not unknown in pubs to look for other forms of identification. Uh, and to respond to the point there we just made a moment ago, it is essential that the information given uh, and taken is very minimal because you don't want to go down to your local pub and a whole plethora of information becomes available. This has to be very minimal. Name, uh, vaccine, type of vaccine. And when you go in through the door, we know some of the details. Six people can sit at a table. Uh, there won't be service from the bar. It'll be table service. You will have to leave by half 11. Uh, and there has been some clarification as well about uh, underage people okay. who will be accompanied by adults. If these things have been delayed in the implementation because of a desire to be safe, haven't the change in the numbers of the new COVID cases meant that this is a risk? You've set out the economic reasons for doing this, but what about the public health concerns that the already growing number of COVID-confirmed cases every day could go up dramatically if indoor dining is to resume? Yeah, there is a risk in everything we do, and we're going to be living with COVID. Some of our health experts have said this could be with us for the next decade. There will be risks now, there will be risks next month, they'll fluctuate and they'll probably remain for the next five or 10 years, possibly. Uh, and we need to manage those. I think what we're going to see here, it's a framework to get places reopened. Uh, you will be able initially to go in if you're vaccinated. It's also important, and this has been totally glossed over in a lot of media reportage and social media hysteria. There is a legal provision for antigen testing as well, uh, and other forms of testing. I think it's acceptable in the weeks to come that you will go to your local pub or restaurant proving you're COVID-free, safe to enter, either by being vaccinated, I, I'm delighted to be vaccinated, I'm pro-vaccinated, but, but um, some people are not. If you're hesitant, if you haven't been vaccinated yet, you can prove that you've recovered from COVID and there is provision vis-a-vis -vis statutory instruments okay, for antigen testing. That, and we, we can't there get will to that be point an opportunity enough. that the unvaccinated can get in if they have an antigen test that shows up negative. As I say, I don't like that term, the unvaccinated. I think I think it's uh, I don't think it's a, it's a correct terminology. People who are waiting to be vaccinated, I think, and that's the vast majority of Not people. Not all of them are waiting to be vaccinated either. So, so we need, we need uh, I, didn't, as well. I didn't interrupt you. So I'd appreciate if you didn't interrupt me. Thanks. So I think the the important thing is that the the vaccine program continues. Um, that we have clear sight of these million vaccines that are supposed to be coming from abroad, and that we know that there is going to be a plan. I think antigen 
antigen testing is, is going to be part of it. But let's be frank, that's not going to be available on Monday. So, you know, the, this thing is a thing that is coming uh, and that might be in place, but isn't in place yet. So that added layer of protection that, uh, that we and others had called for isn't in place yet. It may happen, it may not, uh, you know, and I think that that's, you know, that is very regrettable because that gives everybody a chance to safely be indoors. And we still have the situation where we will have people who are vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. I very much encourage other people to do it. However, you do have a situation whereby people will be indoors, they will be working indoors and they will not have had an opportunity to get vaccinated oh, okay. and get the protections that that gives them. We have to move on to another topic. The stockbroking company Davy, which was put up for sale earlier this year after a record central bank fine for regulatory breaches, is to be sold in a deal that could be worth over 600 million euro to its shareholders. Our economics correspondent, Paul Colgan, joins us now. And just briefly, remind us of the controversy which led to Davy being put up for sale in the first place. Well, this relates to a central bank enforcement action that concluded back in March. And as a result of that, Davy were fined over 4 million euro. The fine would have been much higher only for, for not... A, some cooperation towards the end of that enforcement action. But in its report at the time, the central bank said that when this first became known uh, back in 2016, this, this bond deal that uh, Davy had been on both sides of, Davy had failed to disclose the full extent of the wrongdoing. And there was a general lack of candor. And this contributed to the conclusion of that investigation. Essentially, they attempted to sell a, a bond. Davy was selling a bond on behalf of a businessman but it was a consortium of 16 Davy employees who were bidding on that bond that he was not aware of. So Davy were on both sides of the deal. He was not aware of it. Subsequently, the 16 employees sold parts of that bond at a profit. And once it became public knowledge, the central bank said Davy, at least in the first instance, did not come forward with the, the full okay. uh, facts on the matter. Now, Paul, there was a lot of political and public pressure put on Davy at the time. Various individuals who were involved in that Davy 16 had to give up their positions and then the move came on to sell the business. But it seems like there's going to be an enormous reward for them. One particular individual could be 70 million euro plus richer as a result, three others sharing in 120 million euro in profits. How did that end up being the solution to this problem? Well, there was no Garda investigation. There was no investigation from the OECD deemed necessary. So this is a simple case, I suppose, of senior shareholders. They're still attached to the business in that regard. When the business is sold, that they will will get whatever their shares are worth. So we're talking about the likes of Brian McKernan, the former chief executive of Davy, who was made to stand down in March after the centre-back report. He is thought to control around 13% of the company. So he's looking at a return of tens of millions. And then there's a group of senior executives some who also had to stand down at the time who are in line to, to recoup similar amounts from the sale of Davy. So this will undoubtedly draw a lot of attention. Also, about a third of the businesses, we understand, is owned by Davy staff. So they are in line for a significant windfall. The price attached to today was 440 million euro, but it could go well above 600 million, depending on how the deal works okay, out. And, and Paul, depending on how the very deal is briefly, please, why is it that Bank of Ireland is buying it? And was it encouraged by the Department of Finance to do so? Well, Bank of Ireland had been the front runners in this process 
from day one. Uh, when the news was released today, the Department of Finance, the Minister for Finance, certainly welcomed the move. He says it would be good for the Irish economy. AIB have also bought good body stockbrokers. So there are concerns about a, a lack of competition, but also there are structural concerns from a government point of view that maybe something had to be done with it. And this is the, the outcome. Uh, also, one thing that will draw some criticism is the fact that staff at Davy will retain their pay structure, will retain their bonuses, and they won't be subject to, to the banker's pay cap. Remarkable stuff. Paul Colgan, thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Our thanks to Louise O'Reilly and Kira Phelan. Colin Crow will be staying with us after the break. Wedding planner Frank will tell us about couples left in limbo over wedding numbers yet again. Stay with us. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. mentioned already that a lot of people have sent out the invitations, would have the numbers planned. What sort of financial cost will there be to couples? Or will hotels refund them if they're not able to bring 100 guests and can only stick at 50? It really depends on the property. I know uh, already lots of couples have lost two deposits and three deposits and that weren't refunded from hotels. And I also know that, you know, there's um, caterers uh, were on the phone to me this morning and they have been planning for weddings for 100. They got the news this morning. And again, they were very disappointed the way they heard the news. I think it was very disingenuous to release this information the way it was done. And, you know, we are running businesses for over 25 years, a lot of these people. And then to hear this being just leaked as, uh, I don't think it'll be happening. It's actually their business, their livelihood, and it's just been kind of, you know, thrown away, really, on a, on a, on a whim comment, you know, and I, I think it's very unfair. And, Peter, and again, it's... Can uh, I just finish by asking you, Peter, do you think it's going to lead to a fundamental shift for the future in the Irish wedding, in the numbers that attend, that the sort of the big country wedding of a 200, even 300, could be a thing of the past, and that couples will opt for the simpler, smaller versions in the future? I think there's a big trend to having a smaller wedding anyway. But uh, in Ireland, it's, it's very strange. If you look at the demographic around the country, um, in Cavan, it was always three or 400 was the normal wedding size. In Cork, it might have been 150 or 120. So it really depended where you came from. I think there'll be a lot of people having smaller weddings, um, in, and that was the trend before COVID happened. Um, but there's still going to be a lot of people who want big weddings. And they want to dance at weddings. They want to enjoy their family and friends. Um, and again, I cannot understand why there's no testing 
um, to make this safe because it can be done safely. And I think that's, I think the biggest issue I have for the last year and a half is that um, we've been asking to do safe events. Um, and the first events that happened in the country uh, were done without tests, yeah. which were ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. OK, Peter, hopefully for all of the couples who are planning to get married in the near future, they can get things done as they want and you'll be able to help them and the other wedding planners. Thank you very much for being with us here on The Tonight Show. You're welcome. Schneider-Carl, were you a pandemic bride or did you manage to just get in before the restrictions were put in place? We snuck in before the restrictions. We came back from our honeymoon the day of the first case. Um, so we really snuck in. We had a So you got lucky before. so really, didn't We you? were really lucky. And, the, and thinking back on it, we, it was February 14th, we got married and we had we had a big wedding. And we don't fit into the moulds of uh, the, the, the uh, counties being spo spoken about there, but we had 200. And now looking back, you look back at the photos and you look back at the dancing and the singing and the kissing and the hugging and yeah we we should have been more aware of what was happening on february 14th but there was very little conversation about from guests i remember one of my guests from america asked you know is there any problem with me coming over with covid and i was like nah you're grand <laughs> so it is very unusual so i do i because i was coming out of that kind of really nice phase of life i do feel real sympathy for everybody who has had to postpone dates and probably some of these people now who are you know looking at august thought they'd have 100 they've probably they some of them will be on their third fourth fifth date um after planning their original one for sometime in 2020. so colin crow given that we already as uh, Frank alluded to, have hotel restaurants are open for dining at present, and there can be hundreds in hotel restaurants for that. We have the indoor hospitality resuming from next Monday, large numbers in many functions. Why restrict the wedding to just 50? So I suppose just to speak of where things are at at the moment, 50 are allowed. We will know next week if that goes up to 100. And the trend for the last uh, 15 or so months has been that we set out a time frame within which uh, restrictions can be eased. We're in that phase at the moment. And, you know, hospitality, as we spoke about earlier, opens on Monday, indoor hospitality. So we're into a next phase of uh, easing restrictions. But what a few people have been cautioning over the past two or three days is that don't expect it to go back up to 100. I think we need to sound some words of caution as well to people. The Delta variant is sweeping across the country. It must be said, though, that COVID, uh, although it's uh, definitely on the rise again, many are saying we're, we're already in the fourth wave of COVID. It is more manageable. There's only 23 in intensive care, a lot less people in hospital, a lot, lot less deaths than last year. It is more manageable, and yet it is there is a, a risk level. I think the way forward here, Matt, is again antigen testing, uh, and we are going to see uh, that slowly being introduced, I think, into Irish life, certainly in third-level campuses in a matter of weeks. This will be part and parcel of the return. If you take your typical wedding, whether it's 200 or 150 or 400 up in Cavan, the same cohort of people will join that wedding party at 12 or half 12 in the day. They'll still be there by midnight. I think it'd be very reasonable uh, as they come through the lobby for their drinks and canapes uh, to undertake an antigen test, maybe a temperature check, uh, some basic checking and, and allow them in. Sinead, surely she was done at the church beforehand. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the nature. And if you hear an effort, like there is a there is a difference between a kind of controlled event where where with organisers compared to a wedding. Once you're at a wedding, you are pretty loose. You're with people that you love and know and trust, and that is when your kind of COVID radar drops a little bit. So I I can understand why a hundred might be a bit risky at the moment. And actually, I have a lot of friends who are getting married and they didn't bother even planning for a hundred. They've said like fifty is really good compared to you know some people 
people having six over the last few months. They planned for 50 and they're sticking with 50. They never and went to the 100. could that be the new trend? I mean, I know the wedding planners and the hotels might prefer the bigger numbers all the time, but could it be that people will start to look at it and say, well, actually, let's, instead of asking the parents' friends from down the road, that it'll just be a much smaller, more intimate group of your friends and family? Yeah, I think people have enjoyed kind of that special uh, day and the framing of the day being really special. And a lot of people thought they'd have the big party afterwards. But in my experience of friends who have done it, they've had said, no, that was my wedding day. It was really special. I can't imagine it being any other way. So that might. But then again, when we all get back to normal, when it, whatever that is and whenever it is, you know, we might all want these big blowout parties. I can't wait to go to a wedding. You know, like some people give out when they call the wedding invites a summons. So I don't think any of us should give out again if we get an invite a to a fortune. wedding. <laughs> not having to rip out all the various clothes that are required and for all the weekends away, the accommodation and the rest uh, of it. I still miss them. They're nice days of joy and happiness that you know you're experiencing and I always find it an honour to go to them so I, th I do think that that probably will come back um, when that Just is available call, to us very quickly is this one of the things that the government you know between this and communions and confirmations that not enough attention has been given to the things that are important to people's lives that there's been an attempt to suppress them rather than find ways to encourage them well, it's not about suppressing families, it's about suppressing COVID, and that has been uh, the key metric all the way along. And as I just said a moment ago, and I think this has been borne out by NEFIT, COVID's becoming more manageable. Uh, it's, it's very much spreading, but it's more manageable. It doesn't have the same high-impacting level, risk levels as it would have had 15 months ago. This will be a lifeline to hotels in the west of Ireland long after staycations are over, weekend weddings. We need to find a formula very quickly, I think, by early autumn that they can resume again. OK, after the break, we're going to go live to Tokyo ahead of the Olympic Games opening ceremony. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, with the pandemic-delayed Olympic Games opening ceremony set to get underway in Tokyo, journalist Kieran Pender joins us live from there. Thank you very much for getting up. It's very early in the morning for you in Tokyo. But tell us, what can we expect out of this opening ceremony, given that normally there's a big dramatic events which also involve lots of flag carrying by the teams, lots of the athletes taking part, full crowds in the stadium. What's it going to be like this year? Sure, there's a very muted feeling here on the ground in Tokyo ahead of the opening ceremony tonight. Uh, COVID is rising uh, in Tokyo and in the Olympic bubble. Um, the opening ceremony will take place tonight behind closed doors uh, to a backdrop of protests in Tokyo uh, in, in opposition to the Games and only a limited number of athletes. So there's about 11,000 athletes competing in Tokyo uh, in the next two weeks. Normally, most of those would march, but because of COVID, only uh, a small delegation from each nation will be marching. So we don't quite know what the theatrics will be, but certainly the feeling here on the ground is is one of concern and apprehension ahead of this uh, two-week COVID Games. I think many of us still remember the brilliant 2020 Games in London and how much of that was created by the atmosphere of the crowds or many Irish people as well going across for the Games. The absence of crowds in Japan, what is expected from the Games without actually having spectators there? 
Yeah, I mean, it takes away a core part of of the Olympic ethos and values. Uh, I think a lot of athletes in the past year and a half have became accustomed to competing behind closed doors to no crowds. Um, and there will be some noise, you know, journalists and and and, and officials in stadiums. Uh, but it will really be an eerie silence. Uh, we've got these huge venues. I was at the swimming pool yesterday, um, uh, having a look ahead of the swimming action tomorrow. Uh, it's a 15,000-seater venue, and it's going to be completely empty other than the swimmers and us sitting there watching and reporting on it. Um, that's a, an eerie silence for any sporting event, but particularly for the Olympics, this grand global moment. Uh, all playing out behind closed doors. And Kieran, we're hearing that the locals are very hostile to this event taking place at all. Uh, something like 80%, according to opinion polls, saying that the foreigners should not be in the country for the Games to go ahead. How unusual is that, given the lack of public protest that there normally is in Japan about things? Yeah, this is extremely unusual for Japan. There's widespread public resistance, uh, protests planned for today. Sponsors are dropping out. Toyotas, a major sponsor of the game, said that they won't be airing advertisements in the next two weeks in Japan because of concern about being affiliated uh, with this divisive moment. So on one hand, you have companies pouring millions and millions of dollars into this international sporting edifice, and yet they're pulling away now because it's become so politically controversial. Um, so I, I think there's really two ways this will play out. Either um, the games will come on, people will be taken by the sporting atmosphere, particularly if Japanese athletes have a successful few uh, weeks and they had a particularly successful games in Rio. And so there's a hope that, that success on the sporting field will distract from what this represents. Um, but if COVID continues to spike in Tokyo and in the Olympic bubble, uh, we could see real recriminations for the IOC and the local organising committee in the weeks ahead. And has there been any uh, signs that having so many foreigners, not just the athletes, but all of their support staff, management and all the journalists arriving in Japan has imported more COVID into the country? There's about 70,000 uh, people coming in in total in the next two weeks across athletes, staff, uh, journalists, etc. And they're confined for the first 14 days to an Olympic bubble. So we're not allowed to go out and about. Um, but but there, those are some limitations on that, some caveats. So I'm allowed to go out to the local supermarket near my hotel, but only for 15 minutes. Um, of course, COVID probably doesn't need more than 15 minutes to spread. Um, but the, the paradox here is that the Olympics in this tight, in relatively contained bubble uh, with high testing regime, at the moment I'm being tested every day, the athletes are being tested every day. Um, although there have been some COVID cases, they're being taken care of relatively quickly. Whereas in the general population, there were 2,000 COVID positives in Tokyo yesterday, only about 10,000 tests. So we're seeing more COVID testing being done in the Olympic bubble by a significant margin than the whole population of Tokyo, a city of you know, millions and millions of people. Um, so there is this paradox, but certainly there is a, 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 a fear about what these games could mean in terms of uh, spreading the pandemic further. Kieran, stay with us. I want to bring our guests in the studio back in with us. Sinead O'Carroll, I suppose we're used at this stage to seeing major sporting events taking place in front of empty stadia. What, is it something though that we can enjoy the Olympics with? Will it be somewhat diminished by not having the atmosphere of the crowds? 
For those of us in not in the country, the Olympics is often a television event where you kind of get your schedule, you get into sports that you've never watched a huge amount before or since the, the, the Olympics four years ago. But the Olympics is often dogged, dogged beforehand with budget overruns, public controversy scandals, um, disquiet by locals about the various things that have happened. But what usually happens, and this happened in London 2012, the example you gave, is once the, once the thing starts and the atmosphere builds and there's things like the free events that you can go out to, and this is the one thing that I think is going to be very different in Japan, the marathons, the cycle races, the road walking, all of those things that people can just walk out and cheer on athletes and, and that really builds atmosphere. The fact that those places are cordoned off now, Japanese people aren't going to be able to go out and even like look at the marathon runners and cheer them on. So they're the things I think will mean that, you know, the 15 uh, billion dollar budget will actually make a difference. The fact that restaurants um, and local uh, businesses won't benefit from the likes of Kieran being there and able to spend money uh, and, you know, just bring an atmosphere. So I, I'm not sure this will recover like other Olympics that are dogged with controversy beforehand. The only thing is that the IOC obviously has their sponsorship and their um, budgets to mind, but the athletes also have to mind it. These are people who are trying to peak every four years it's extremely difficult and precarious business that these uh mostly a lot of them are very amateur you know we'll have superstars there but you know a lot of ordinary people who we won't know not household names trying to peak in a fifth year of the cycle is extremely difficult so to have that cancelled would have been heartbreaking so you can see you know why there is a, an argument for this to go ahead as but, well but Carl, should it really have gone ahead given that the host nation the people of the host nation are very very unhappy and feel that they've been forced into doing it because their government has been forced by contracts with the IOC. Is it ethical and moral to actually have an event like this going ahead at the time of a pandemic? I don't have all the answers to that. I mean, I'm in, in Irish politics where we make decisions in the realm of Ireland, but I have been watching with great interest over the last um, number of days how this story has been panning out, in particular hearing a Japanese politician on national radio, and it was translated, and it was on uh, Irish media in the last few days. He couldn't commit 48 hours from the opening ceremony that the event would even take place. I was in Beijing in 2008, and um, yeah, there's, there's a fabulous pageantry about it all. I wasn't at the Olympic Games, but I happened to be in the city at the time. Uh, but it masquerades other things as well, because just behind the, the glossy billboards, there were shanty towns that had been pushed back with bulldozers to make way for, for the glitz and glam of it all. Uh, but there are a lot of positives. There will be 116 Irish athletes there, the largest contingent ever. Uh, on a gender basis, it breaks down approximately 50-50. Uh, and there will, I'm sure, be medals won there. So that's that's very exciting. And there's a girl from home, if I can name her, <laughs> Naomi Carroll. But the buzz, the buzz that her from a small village in a minority sport going to Olympics, um, you've seen small kids out with hockey sticks. We're here to four that have been out playing camogie hurling. It just gives a little bounce to a community. And these 116 athletes are dotted around the countryside. I was even talking to Green Room before coming in air with Louisa Riley. She has a local athlete. We all know somebody competing. And we're going to be watching a lot of minority supports shouting at taekwondo events. Uh, you know, really, I suppose, wanting our own to go out and win medals out there. That's a good well, uh, How many medals are we in contention to win, Sinead, do you think? 
probably four or five, I think. There's, and it, we'll be looking at the rowing and the boxing. So it's always nice to think that there might be a surprise. So we might, you know, there we have a chance with Reese McElligan in the gymnastics. He's, you know, medaled at Worlds and Europeans before. Um, he's had wrist and shoulder injuries in the last while. So, but he's definitely one to watch and an absolutely great competitor and someone who's brilliant to make someone, people might have seen his viral video over testing whether the beds were anti-sex uh, beds, like some people had suggested in the run-up. Uh, so his video went viral. Jack Woolley, uh, as Cahill mentioned, he's a taekwondo. Uh, he's currently ranked fourth in the world. He's a young man from Jobstown. He's very, very close to qualifying in Rio. He didn't, um, has really taken on, uh, he was featured in a documentary on RT a few weeks ago. Um, he is a really good shout if people want to get up early on Saturday morning and really get into the spirit early to see if, you know, we could get a surprise medal there. But the the, the medals we will be looking at will be rowing and, and boxing and people like Kelly Harrington. Then the golf will be really interesting. Well, There's so say, much Shane stuff. Lowry, even yeah. Rory McIlroy. And when I said we, and sometimes we're guilty of sort of saying, well, these are individuals who are competing as much for themselves as they're competing for their country. But we do have this issue. What if Rory McIlroy suddenly ends up winning a medal? He seems to be competing for golf rather than for Ireland. Yeah, no, he, and and I think one of the things with Rory and Shane, Rory and Shane going this time, poor Carrington went in Rio uh, 2016 and he actually genuinely was the happiest man in Rio because he felt this like individual athlete. He get, got to be part of a team for the first time and he really felt that. And I think he has probably told that to the to the other athletes going and to the golfers going now, being like, no, this is worth your time. This is worth your energy. It's it would be really important for you to win a medal for Ireland here. Well, let's go back to Japan, to Tokyo, to Kieran, because there also is the issue of political protest. We saw, for example, in the Euro 2020 football, many of the teams taking the knee in a protest against racism. But what is the International Olympic Committee doing to try and prevent political statements from any athletes? So even before the games formally begin tonight, there have been a number of football matches in the last few days where uh, for both teams have taken the knee. The IOC issued an edict to their social media team to not display that, uh, which The Guardian reported on, and the IOC subsequently walked that back. And I think that underscores how tense these issues are for the IOC. They have a rule, Rule 50, that prohibits political expression on the field of play. That's been amended ahead of these games to try and allow athlete political expression in certain settings, but not others during the games. But that's going to be a flashpoint in Tokyo. And I think that foreshadows what's going to come. Beijing uh, 2022 Winter Olympics are just around the corner. Obviously, the human rights issues in China are also going to elicit considerable concern um, from athletes. So I think we're seeing increasing uh, political activism by athletes. And obviously, the Olympics is the biggest stage for that. It's the biggest stage, Carl, but should it be prohibited? Is this the type of place where we should be trying to take politics out of the celebration of sporting events? Yeah, it's already dogged, I think, the lead up to it. We've had resignations of some of the lead figures in it. Uh, some of them related to bullying. There was uh, remarks about Holocaust. So there's a, quite a murky kind of crew of people in terms of the coordinating committee. But I've been looking at that too. And uh, some of their crimes and their awful things they've said and done were back in the 1990s. So it, it, again, I think, breaks up that whole argument. How far back do you go in terms of looking at someone's awful mistakes? Uh, you know, we've statute limitations in some laws but in how people conduct themselves. And it's wrong, a hundred times over, but how far back do we go? We've, the whole opening ceremonies in disarray, I think they have to go and find new music because they can't play music, a certain guy. Um, 
compose and there's, there's a whole Ferrari about that there's plenty of politics in this and unfortunately I think uh, we've seen time and time again both at the last Olympics in terms of the whole ticketing fiasco and at this one uh, politics and sport don't mix uh, I take off my political hat when I watch um, when I watch sport and rightly so and I think uh, we, we shouldn't I, make I don't it know Carl, do you, do you go to GA matches as a <laughs> TD now or I, you can't extricate politics from sport and I think asking athletes to do it in this day and age is just not possible like athletes now are a different breed than they were 20, 30 years ago, although there has always been uh, political demonstrations at the Olympics. But I think asking athletes to just go and do their job silently is not something that the IOC should be doing or can be doing in this day and age. And I, I think it's something that, you know, as Kieran said, they keep having to walk things back because they keep getting caught. Um, very similar to UEFA and the rainbow flag and the rainbow colours in, in Germany. You know, they, they just make themselves look politicised rather than allowing the athletes to have the expression and, and power that they that they have earned. The very first political problem protest was by the Irish at the Athens Games back in 1906 when Irish winners were forced to take their medals as British competitors. That's all we have time for on this evening's programme. My thanks to Sinead O'Carroll, to Cahill Crow and to Kieran Pender in Tokyo for joining us. Thanks very much and I hope you enjoy the opening ceremony if you're lucky enough to be at it today. Our programme is available at a pod as a podcast and our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. I'll be on radio with the last word today FM tomorrow afternoon from all the late team here on The Tonight Show. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the good weather. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.